0: Venture capital investment has continued to flow into technology startups. No one builds technology from scratch. There are cloud services, software libraries, third-party services, and software platforms that modern entrepreneurs must adopt to build their products efficiently and quickly. These layers of infrastructure are a key area for many investors. In this episode, I interview Tim Chen, managing partner of Essence VC a venture fund on a mission to help highly technical founders go from zero to one. We discuss his approach to investment in infrastructure companies, developer tools, and similar areas for early stage investments. Well, Tim, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, it's good to be here. Tell me a little bit about Essence.
1: So yeah, Essence VC, so we're a VC fund. We specialize in investing in developer tools and infrastructure we back companies at the earliest stage, so where a person that has a rough idea or a couple of rough ideas, all the way to have a team with a product, we basically are part of there to support companies and technical founders going after generally the enterprise infrastructure space.
0: So I hear people use terms like seed, pre-seed, A-round. Where do you define yourselves in that spectrum?
1: Well, yeah, the definition of that term changes, I feel like, <laughs> every quarter now. So basically... I try to get involved as earliest as possible. Like a lot of companies, when they basically even have no clue what the product they're going to build is, I will actually back them. Maybe just an idea, but not very rough idea. So you can call that pre-seed, although pre-seed is getting larger. So I'm sure there are going to be new names for that. But I'm really as early as possible, especially in when this is vertical that I'm focusing.
0: Gotcha. Well, my understanding is the earlier stage you are, the more likely it is you might pivot. I don't know if that's for sure true. Maybe you have some data on it. Do you find that to be true? And if so, do you worry about that risk being an early stage investor? Yeah, that's a
1: risk that you can't really account for, but it happens all the time. I was a founder before, and actually, although we didn't pivot, like completely change what we're doing, we had to try completely different products maybe selling to different problems within the general space. So yeah, it's very common. Like you will start with some place and then build a product or the early prototype. It didn't work out as much. You try out completely different side of the persona. Maybe it was the developer and now this becomes like an SRE, right? Maybe still in the rough, large direction. So every company's journey is so different. It's really, really hard to know maybe two companies we backed cross paths. And I know that would be tricky, but I feel like the only way can can do this is to get consent right, from the founders. And if it does happen, then we just have to kind of trail the waters as, as carefully as we can. It's really hard. Yeah. At earliest stage, anything can happen. That's definitely true. That's, that's part of fun part of actually doing early stage because you're helping the companies actually navigate the pivots.
0: Well, another property I see in early stage companies is not everyone, but broadly speaking, they tend to be a little rougher on the edges in explaining their value proposition or describing, you know, how they're gonna grow. Are there any things you need to do above and beyond to have a vision for who has potential and success at an early stage?
1: You know, this is probably where I feel like I have been having so much conversations and I start to realize I actually have an edge helping companies, especially because I'm I'm a technical background founder, I was a founder before, I've done this so much in this infra space, you know, how do I actually describe the vision and how do I actually, and, and basically this is, a lot of this has to be figured out because you're fundraising, right? You actually get investors excited. You need to have a story that's exciting for people that doesn't know your space as much or know enough about the space, but not really deeply. And I've worked with lots of founders, you know, even last few investments where you can say they're rough in the edges, like everybody has unique abilities somewhere. Maybe you have a very big technical, you know, background, or you have done some research or you have a huge network. Somebody has to have some unique ability, right? But when it comes to like storytelling, that is actually not something people usually do that much. You probably probably not in fundraise that much before or never. It's a big jump right? I realize, especially technical founders going after this space. They don't really know how to storytell or even know how to position themselves well. And that's one of the fun part doing this. I actually sit down with the founders, look at what they know, look at what they've done and what they're looking to do and completely rewrite their pitch deck over a couple of times, (laughs) even come with new company names, right? Or even come with different ways to talk about their products and that has to, 180 effects on their fundraising. So like, you know, the rough edges is my advantage, I will say, like, because this is where I feel I can help the most, where not many investors can, right? And so that it's true. Rough edges are there, you know, you kind of have to go past that, but you kind of have to find like, what is really, really different about this team or person and what is still missing and what are potential markets this team can go into and try to find, is there enough to explore here?
0: Well, being a former technical founder and having an engineering background makes you somewhat unusual for a VC. I can definitely see where that would help you in shaping some of these early stage companies. Could you talk a little bit about your background there and, and how that's informed what you do today?
1: Yeah. You know, if you ask most investors of VC, how you got into VC, most people tell you very accidental. I think to me, it's really, yeah, I never even knew what a VC is when I was an engineer. I was a software engineer. I graduated University of Washington, not even CS, right? I was informatics, you know, I've learning a lot about programming and got into a lot of like open source myself. So I'm an engineer that really learned a lot myself, not completely, but quite a lot to get into working on interesting problems as an engineer. I'm really interested in distributed systems and work on open source on weekends and nights and joined a couple early stage companies, one called Mesosphere that got a lot of attention in early days at 2014 because docker I was able to work on pretty interesting problems you know mesos was powered in production and twitter for lots of nodes apple as well and so it got to work with really smart people really interesting problems so that was kind of my background working on large-scale systems then i became a founder myself i left mesosphere i raised the seed round i, I co-founded with two other co-founders And had to learn how to become from an engineer. You know, I never really, I managed a tech engineer team, but I'd never been involved in marketing or sales or any of the other disciplines. Suddenly, you know, start from fundraising, figure out how to talk about my company, all the way to actually making something happen. And I realized it was a much bigger jump than I was assuming before I even raised for my company. So that journey helped me quite a lot because I had to become the CEO and really learn how to make things happen, how to get customers, how to convince them, right, and and do a lot of those kind of things. And I don't think I did it really well even, right? I have a lot of <laughs> learnings and failures and that. But that journey informed me quite a lot to now when I become an investor now, really able to, like, understand what that journey might look like. And so, like, yeah, my journey into this investing side and how this technical background, I guess, it's really able to see how a person like me has to grow into something more larger. Like I can even feel like the emotional journey even to go through that. And so when I help companies, when I after I back them, I try to have really as much empathy as possible to help them. So I don't say like technical ability, yes, it definitely helps me to navigate, right, have the right network of engineers to help companies back in a space or understand how to position products and stuff like that. What I also feel like from a personal side, being an engineer to have to jump into a, being a founder, that journey, I personally walk through it a little bit. And so I have so much more, yeah, empathy in general to do that.
0: Makes sense. Could we revisit some of the focus of your investment? I believe you mentioned dev tools and enterprise infrastructure as kind of being the broad theme. Are there maybe any good examples in the portfolio of companies you want to highlight or just general features you're looking for in your investments?
1: Yeah, you know, I really like companies that really targets just technical audiences. So it doesn't have to be software engineers, but if you're selling or part of your users are developers, you know, data scientists, you know, system engineers, or people who are just more technical in general, I found to have a lot of sort of ability to understand and help shape the company to really make, get traction the companies that back are generally in that category, either they are targeting a technical audiences right they're building software to help data scientists help engineers be more productive or you know ensure the quality of their applications or like help automate some part of their jobs or you have a lot of data and I want to really able to leverage that data right find the best data ai machine learning and infrastructure to be able to like make a difference around that data so you know companies i would say. That's in a data, you know, there's big modern data stack movement. I have a couple companies in that space, like Transform, Notable, some of those companies like that, or open source-based companies, because I've been personally involved in open source quite some time. I'm really fond of companies in that space. This could be Encore, DVC, and stuff like that. And companies are like helping data scientists, you know, dev tools, or companies even taking data and doing a bunch of automation, like I mentioned, this is Alchemy, yeah. Lots of, lots of different examples. I'm just highlighting a few things on top of my head. But yeah. yeah, these are kind of the themes are all around data and infra. <laughs> and the common sort of help I bring is figuring out how to hire, figuring out how to actually sell and, and make the product better and know how to talk to the audience that you're talking to.
0: Are there any common things you see founders underestimating?
1: You know, I think every stage has its unique challenges when it comes to the founding team. You know, most of the founders I back art more always are mostly technical. And, you know, I think what founders usually don't have any experience in, they usually underestimate it. So engineers might think, you know, selling to companies is easy. <laughs> or if you're, if you're a sales or a product person, you might think building a, a product is easy. I will it is not always true, but you either fully auto overestimate or you really underestimate. And I think most technical engineers really underestimate the the marketing and the sales side. Like, especially a lot of the engineers I talk to, like, hey Tim, why are you really, you know, really honing down on how we talk about a product? It doesn't really matter. And I say, hey, it really matters because people how people talk about your product is the product when you ha- don't have anything to use, right? Even if you have a product, how people talk about you really matters a lot. And it's really surprising, I think, for engineers, they don't understand how much work it takes to iterate right? And to really hone down that story. And this really ties into fundraising. Some engineers can fundraise really easily because of their backgrounds, some they couldn't. And the ones that couldn't, we have to really work through weeks of times, sometimes even months to get the, the pitch ready to, to be able to make that happen. And so I think this, this is underestimating things that you don't understand happens quite a lot. And how much time and shots you have to take to get to the goal is not just one clear shot you get there, right? It's actually multiple shots. And so lots of the things are really hard for someone who never started a company to understand.
0: Yeah. Good points. With regard to open source, someone not super familiar with it like you are might think the idea of open source is you know antithetical to having a commercial business. It'd be silly to invest in something that I can just go take for myself. What's the actual role of open source in modern startups?
1: Yeah, this is a question I feel like we've been really discussing, even among investors, especially a lot of customers. Open source is interesting because open source to a lot of people means different things. you know a lot of people feel like if I just put my code online on github right I'm open source right it could be it could be my own product, it could be part of my product, yeah, like I said, if you just put your product out there with free license and free open source code, you know, it would not help you. It will, it will actually make your company much harder to run because what will people pay for, right? There's pros and cons of having open source, I believe. I think that open source is in one way, yes, it makes it harder because you have to figure out what is gonna be open source, what's not gonna open source, right? And, and how do you actually make money? How do you make people willing to pay for something? Because eventually you have to be a business. Right? You have to be a business to be able to generate revenue. And is that going to be a service people pay for, that you're just hosting it for you? Is this going to be other things you can add on top, like plugins? You have to figure that out. But there's there's also a reason why we're actually very excited about open source. Right? Open source is allowing companies, especially in today's world where like developers and users are having a lot of influence on buying, open source becomes this free marketing not, not, I want to say free marketing, but it's like a very powerful marketing for users to get excited about something and able to contribute or able to actually gain trust and talk about it more openly in the internet for you. And you sort of have this more viral loop, people getting excited about a project in general versus, hey, if it's just a product, people may not be as excited. It was interesting when, as a developer, you have more inclination to talk about an open source project versus commercial product. And that amount of excitement and people sharing and and people talking about your project can really bring a lot more sort of like gravity into what you're trying to accomplish. And you can then capitalize on that, hopefully become what they call the standard, which is really everybody think of X, they think of you. Because you're the most popular or most faster growing open source project with so much people talking about you. Really, I feel like open source has a lot of benefits, is it actually gets people to share and think of you as a more let's think about helping a company to market your products. You're thinking about something that's generally useful. And I'm just helping everybody to understand this, right? Because it's free to use. So yeah, there's this really interesting thread to, to play. Cause yeah, it can be. Something's harder and something's easier.
0: Makes sense. The data space and the infrastructure space as well have evolved quite a bit over the last several years. And I don't know that that's going to stop anytime soon. Are there any particular trends, things like no code and serverless, uh, any things like that that are of particular interest to you as an investor?
1: Infrastructure is, like I said, is evolving, right? You know, I think, you know, if you look at like 10, 15 years ago, what infra investors are investing in are like networking, you know, virtual machines, hard drives, <laughs> you know, things that power your machines sitting on your, your your lap or in a, in some room that needs to be have a temperature measurement in there. Right now infrastructure is a lot more software. It's it's software defined everything, software defined network, storage and stuff. And now I think you know infrastructure now going beyond, right? We're talking about serverless and no code now, right? That's considered even sometimes infra or dev tools. Because the ability for somebody to able to build an abstraction and build your business around and really make your productivity goes much more faster. I think that's a goal, right? Is infrastructure isn't, you're not just buying infra for no reason. You're really making infrastructure bets in your company so that all the rest of your businesses can go faster and better. And so it might be, hey, I'm I'm relying on data and AI to power my business. So I want to have a bunch of automatic recommendations to how I can run my business faster how do I like reduce fraud, right? Or or do a lot of decisions. I really rely on data and much more real time and much more places in my business. Then you need better infra to support that. And so what I'm seeing a trend in infra is like, you're really moving infrastructure to help more personas now. Because what, what we used to think about infrastructure is just, you know, if I'm a infra company, I'm most likely selling to like system engineers, you know, sitting babysitting a data center, you know, like seeing if things go down and go back or monitoring or something like that. Like, I feel like infrastructure is expanding. Like I might be a business analyst and I need infra because business analysts are starting to write code per se, but this code might be drag and drop UIs. It might be like simple rules or low code. Right. But things are powering users to do something on top. I actually consider all of that infrastructure. And so when it comes to infra, it's we're seeing just a lot more abstractions, you know, no longer just give me better network or storage. Right, We're building more and more things on top. Like now an infra could be, hey, give me a website I can drag anything on top of and becomes my personalization website for this particular persona. Infrastructure might be, you know. A way to automatically generate a certain number of ways to empower like my support person to be able to write their own support ticket system and and or even to like have data quality measurements in different places. There's a lot of infrastructure that can be built at reimagine now that I actually pretty excited about because I think there's a lot more people that are trying to be because like of democratization right, empowering a lot more people to build their own apps, build their own workflows, build their own, or build their own insights from the data. And so whatever plumbing needs to happen. So I'm very excited about things that can enable things to happen. You know, this could be serverless, this could be AI generated insights or apps or ways for people to actually gain faster way to query your data and gain really fast ways to, to visualize a very large data sets, right? All these kind of things. I guess I'm not saying very specifically, but, you know, a lot of these new patterns and new abstractions are being invented. And a lot of these, it will take time for them to come up. But, you know, I'm very excited about lots of these because these can be pretty dramatic if it works. Yeah. So my headset right now is is like, what can we reinvent (laughs) so that we can empower a lot more people to do things? And that kind of infrastructure actually is very interesting.
0: How do you typically find the startups that you go on to invest in?
1: Yeah. It's something like we call it sourcing, right? And in, in VC. And uh sourcing has been what I've been learning quite a bit. Cause I, you know, I've I never worked on a VC fund, right? I was a founder, I raised money, and now I I did a little angel investing. But when you start off, you always just start investing in your friends. People that you most likely know, or your friends are friends, right? People that heard you could be helpful for. That's that's where I started. And things start to change over time when I make more friends. You know, this could be other VCs that I collaborate with. This is, when the other angel investors who collaborate with. You sort of build your own network through just common co-investing, and once you have a portfolio of founders, they become your, you know, spokesperson. Like, hey, Tim is the most helpful person we have. You know, really talk to them, <laughs> you know, so our network of nodes just expand over time as long as they think highly of you, basically. So yeah, my, the companies where I come from, come from portfolio founders. They recommend me, other co-investors that we work with. I also have a podcast called Open Source Startup Podcast, where people might have heard of our podcast or companies could come from anywhere. Actually, I have people reach out from GitHub. They saw my code contributions and say, hey, Tim, I saw investors. I saw your code. <laughs> And actually, yeah, I was, you know, wanted to talk to you because of my GitHub account. And, (laughs) you know, I have some Clubhouse, you know, people have reached out before. It it really comes from anywhere.
0: But also the majority is like your own network of people, basically, yeah. Are you open to being pitched or do you prefer to control the inbound? You know, I, I
1: prefer however we can find good companies. You know, I have ways to outbound, basically finding companies I feel like could be interesting or people that could be interesting and and I find them I reach out and also have inbound so I don't have a preference I will just say like it's really important to figure out how to find the right companies and people and so like inbound typically people don't know you as much will will send you things maybe not infrastructure right like it will be a consumer dating app those kind of things I can't even invest in so Mm -hmm. usually those will be Just time-consuming, just reply, like, hey, sorry, I don't invest in this area. So I don't have, like, a strong preference. It's just, like, it's harder to – it takes more time to sort of filter just because I only have a very specific, like, area to invest in.
0: Yeah. Well, let's imagine there's two people listening on a speaker in a garage somewhere right now coding away on the next big thing in development tools. How prepared should they be or what steps should they take before they approach you? You know, like I mentioned, like, I love talking to people (laughs) and working
1: with them when they still have or just a rough idea. Like to me, I think you just really need to know what is the problem that you want to solve, roughly. And also like, what is the thought process that leads you to want to start something? That's to me, it's like a, probably the a prerequisite because we can figure a lot of other things out. But sometimes if you're not so clear why you want to start a company, you just feel like it's a, it's a nice thing to do or it's a fun thing to do or it's a hot thing to do. It will be harder to get anyone excited because starting a company is really hard in general. Uh, It's it's much tougher than people think. So the why matters a lot. And yeah, once you have a why and also you have a problem you really want to solve and you think you could solve it really well, even though may not even know exactly, that's good enough already. I would love to talk to anyone in that nature just to figure out, okay, what are potential ways to do it? Maybe you have a research paper, right? Maybe you have an pos- you know, open source project. I mean, the good thing about being technical, I can read through all that and discuss it with them, figure out ways and re figure out the pitches and all. I-, I really love doing that. So, But it's going to be hard or maybe basically a waste of time if you're not really trying to do this seriously. But, you know, a lot of things start off exploration as well. So I, I'm I'm generally very open to talk to people, and that's especially technical, they really exploring a startup path. But I say, like, to be able to get conviction, like, really want to back somebody, they have to understand the why and the what, right? And those two are very important.
0: Hmm. Well, when you get close to inv- making an investment, it seems to me one of the considerations you have to have is, Especially when investing in DevTools infrastructure, could one of the major cloud providers suddenly introduce, you know, the this novel idea as like a basic feature, not even necessarily maliciously, right? They could just do that and in theory that's a threat that could wipe out whatever unique product or idea you're considering is. Do you have an approach to mitigating the risk that the idea would just be absorbed by a, a giant like GCP, Azure, or AWS releasing it?
1: Everyone has the same Consideration or or problem, especially in this space, we've learned quite a bit over time now, right? You know, I think we're asking this question even like t- seven, 10 years ago. Sure, <laughs> it's definitely something we've been learning over time. Like, what does Amazon do well? What does Google do well? What does Microsoft do well? And what I think was interesting now is like not just the cloud providers can build stuff, right? It's we're gonna see, you know, any large infrastructure company is like. Get into your area or, you know, we are we have Databricks now. We have Snowflake. We have a bunch of people, fairly large, you know, doing a lot of different size investments. And so you know, it's probably nothing new. What we always try to figure out when it comes to infrastructure very specifically, right? Infra has a very unique space because things takes time and typically your revenue won't be It's not like a SaaS product where like you can typically just see like a, you know, very typical growth patterns and and kind of invest there. You actually do need to understand the technology somewhat and understand the space and how things will shape out. And so, yeah, that's part of a thesis of why, you know, when we back any company is to figure out like what makes this company able to own this category? Like if you're going to start, let's say a low-code infra company, right? What is there they're doing that is just not the dna of, a, of amazon or google or microsoft and it's just so hard for them to 180 what they're doing already to go for you right in one way they're not doing it because it's not obvious it's a big risk for them right and so you kind of have to have something you know one example would always be open source right you're not going to completely open source all ec2 or make everything just very easily portable from one cloud to another for example right so somebody making that bet saying that we're going to build something that's completely portable from every cloud and also completely supported by the community you know you can argue that is a very viable way that hey amazon don't like to just port every workload to google very easily right but somebody if that can make that happen in that layer and that itself is very valuable that is a potential way for you to make like hey Amazon probably won't do that. <laughs> that also on its own is the assumption, right? So there's always assumptions when we're trying to make some investments. And I think we have to continue to test those assumptions because things, things will change sometimes. Like sometimes we'll see some layers become just completely democratized. Like maybe the cloud doesn't care anymore. Like it right, is not a place which competes. Let's just open source everything, right? That also creates some interesting challenges. So as a startup, You know, you're really just looking for people that can understand this and really able to move fast and can react, not to react, but just able to really change and and adapt. Because, yeah, you never know. This market also changes quite rapidly.
0: A common path for startups is to go through several rounds of funding, you know, from wherever they start to ABC, that kind of thing. You're investing in the earliest stages of that. With that in mind, where do you see is the vision? I guess you could make one investment and maybe that's all the startup needs to become a cash flow positive business, or maybe the idea is just to bridge them to an A-round or something like that. What are the outcomes you're looking for? Well, you know, if you ask any investor doing it in a space, you're all
1: looking for the largest outcome, right? Um, and I think my goal and my hopefully what I'm doing well is to find companies that can get to the largest outcomes. And so... Yeah, you definitely need quite a few rounds of investments. And what we see, though, in this current VC landscape is that I think like 2021, if you're in for a company that found the right story and the right team, raising is probably not the hardest problem anymore. Like there's a lot of funds are really interested, especially like the largest growth funds, A rounds funds, or or even like, let's say seed funds that are really large now, right? You've seen some announcement they have. Lots of hundreds of millions of seed funds, you know, so funding is not easy, still hard in general, but I think if you can find a right entry into a market and have the right story to tell how to capture that market and have a convincing story to say, this is how we're gonna do it, you know lots of funds can can fund lots of rounds, <laughs> and so my job yeah. as a small investor or you know pre seed investor, it really is thrilling to help the team to iterate to a point to find that right story and lots and lots of funds, you know, we will fund the right companies or the companies that are gaining the right story and traction. So yeah, I, you know, we, we all collaborate, you know, in this whole ecosystem that, Hey, we'll back to earliest companies and we'll help the later stage company or later stage investors understand what this company's sort of, what their approach is different, why they're philosophically we have a chance to own big markets and sort of calibrate there. So yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, we're, we're also working with a lot of investors basically in this space to make a company successful. And we're definitely seeing there's a lot more capital available now. So I think definitely a lot less worry about, hey, how do they find money? I think it's a lot more about like how do they make them, how does a team really able to execute, but also have the right story and angle in mind that will work in the long run. So it doesn't. you don't feel like you're capped in a small
0: market. Well, for a company that's on the right track, but maybe hasn't really found their story yet, you still need to do some sort of valuation if you're going to invest. How do you assign a value at a company like that?
1: Yeah, that's, it's almost impossible. <laughs> and that's one thing when I started, I have no idea. And still, it's really, I mean, the truthful answer, I think everybody will tell you, what you what happens to supply demand, where companies depending on how many interest there is, sometimes will dictate how the price will go. Because in the early that, you cannot price companies easily, right? And every company you back, you're hopefully will become the largest outcomes, right? You're not really trying to play, okay, this is, you know, this is, I will say that as a 10 million valuation versus a 20, of course, it'll make things different. But also if things will work out, it should work out, you know, in both cases. So, you know, it's a hard game. Valuation really happens so fast because a lot of rounds happens quite fast though. And it's really a negotiation process between like the lead investors. Uh, and so, yeah, as far as I can tell right now, the best way you think you can do this is to really figure out what is the comfortable range. <laughs> you know, it's it, and range can widely vary, but it cannot be too wide. This is what I believe we can make things happen, right? It cannot be just one number. This range will be great. So yeah, it's ongoing conversation and challenge because every company is so different. Some markets are more tougher. Some teams have more things in the background that can be proven, you know, and also some teams are just have a lot more interest in investing from VCs. And so all of that gets into a factor. It's like, hey, we can, this is a fair number just based on patterns we've seen. You know, so it's, there's no really big science around it. It's actually really based on what's what's happening.
0: Well, I imagine most technical founders will really focus heavily on the software they're building as sort of the key asset, which certainly that's part of what they're creating. But as you said, you know, they need to think about the why of the business and you know a little bit about how they get to market and all those sorts of things as well. In reality, how important is the software? You know, it's it's a really good question. I think if you
1: talk to lots of different people in this space, we have always have good examples where the the most powerful or most feature-rich or most fastest database or whatever, right? The software that can do something the best may not be the one that can win out the market. And we see that in different kinds of markets, right? We can say databases, we can talk about like CICDs or, you know, um, any kind of thing. What generally is true is you know, especially in this infra space, your software has to be, you know, adopted and also be relied upon by the users. And not always the best sort of like fastest horse will win, you know, you kind of have to build the software that allows people to understand, you know, trust and like using it, <laughs> you know the experience of software also matters quite a lot, so you know I, I mean going back to to question, how do you sell how do you talk about your 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 product and your software should be really one product like it's it's one thing, and the software is just reinforcing what you're talking about, like if I say I'm the easiest to use you know developer s d k to build mobile apps, for example, right then it has to be easiest to use compared to any other option out there, right? And so your software still matters because that's what people actually use. But, you know, if you say I'm going to be the easiest to use, and then, you know, you're only a little bit easier, right? Or it, it gets easier over after three weeks of learning something completely new or something like that. Like it's the level of friction of your software also would impact quite a lot your value of your software, of how people can quickly able to understand it. So I think it's interesting, yeah. You cannot just hone down into very specific features and just say, I'm the best software. You really have to figure out like, what makes this particular kind of product in this market really tick? And how do people really quickly within a low amount of friction able to understand and get excited about your product. And so software really reinforces that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because technical people typically think when they want to build the most complex thing, you know, it's something you can brag about with other developers, basically. <laughs> like I mm-hmm. built this fastest thing. It relies on the latest whatever papers and whatever hardware, right? But then in reality, your markets, your customers either don't care or find that to be really hard to even understand. And then you, you, you can't sell, right? If people can understand, they won't buy Software does matter, but not in a way that matters for engineers, at least.
0: So for your investments, there's some. they must go from some stage from introduction all the way to when you cut a check. Can you talk a little bit about the timelines and milestones you're looking for when considering a company? Yeah. And this
1: varies quite a lot just because every company is quite different. You know, when I'm doing, let's say the teams that are still figuring out what they want to do, like a very, very early stage. And- hasn't even know what particular market to go for. Those companies I typically work a little longer because I want to really get to know the person. I want to get to know or, or the team, a collection of people. What are they like? Right? Can I work with this team really well that I feel like they receive my feedback really well? Or, you know, has really a good mentality and mindset going after this space or just this whole entrepreneur journey overall. And can I be able to tell what are the most unique abilities coming into this space? Like, what can I do exceptionally well that I believe can show up in the product? And so that takes time because a lot of times, like it's, when we talked about earlier, right, rough in the edges, they could be pretty rough in the edges depending on how they are. But I don't just pass on them. For the ones I believe that has something interesting, I'll spend some time. You know, sometimes it will take like a month and a half or two months, right, to really go through that. And it's like, okay, this is actually much more interesting than than it shows on the surface then i can back them. so those those takes long sometimes hey it's this it's a company that has lots of things figured out and open source is already out there for example or has already people using the product or they built this before some other larger context right and understands what exactly what they need to do right and a lot of kind of things are in place then it doesn't take that long right it could you know couple of chats, you know, couple of references and understanding like, you know, and maybe if they have a product, try it and that kind of thing, then it should be good enough to understand what the parameters are. So it varies quite a lot, just be ten, depends on what is the state of the team and how much their story is clear. Yeah. But I, I try to spend time on the ones that believes have a good shot to have a good story.
0: With regard to the team, I guess the need is going to vary a lot by what the product or service is, but I'm curious if you have any common recipes for success. I suspect, you know, five technical co-founders might not do as well as a more diverse group. What does it really take to get a good company going? Yeah, you know, I guess when it comes
1: to companies, I found many, many variations that has worked and many variations that has not worked. And I don't really have a good I would say like maybe put it all the way around, like there are teams, the three technical co-founders could work and I backed quite a few of them myself. One thing I always believe is that everybody can learn like, Hey, I wasn't a CEO before I was able to learn just enough to get somewhere, you know, and you really are looking for people that can learn that has the mindset that can receive feedback that has the right mentality to understand what it means to learn something new and not rely on what they know so much. So there's, to me, I'm looking for people that has the right mentality, has the right mindsets. And I really like people that can have confidence in what they have done so well, but has enough, really a good amount of humility of what they don't know and willing to really partner and for people to really help them. So, yeah, and like to me, recipes assessed are not what they know really well. Because sometimes if you find the, the greatest marketing person, the greatest product person, the greatest technical person, whatever, however you measure it, you smash them together and they don't work because they rely on too much what they know and they don't adapt well to the market. Because most of the times, as a founder, you are always learning a whole lot. Like when you start at the pitch level when you just raise your round. You really only know like a tiny fraction of what you need to know to succeed. And it happens to every single company. So it's like playing an RTS game, right? You, your, your map is completely blacked out. <laughs> you think you know every single thing, but you really in reality don't know anything. Not enough to really succeed. And so the teams that can really work well are the teams that are willing to know that, hey, my mental model of the map is not just all I know, right? It's actually, there's a huge compass of things I need to go figure out. And I'm willing to learn and willing to take that on. Those teams succeed much faster because they are able to put their foot down. You know, they don't wander around. They execute. Or I'm saying that the teams that can execute really well are the ones that are willing to try things, willing to actually take a stance really quickly, but also really to take feedback and readjust
0: really quickly as well. Those perform just much better in general. Well, good insights. Tim, where can listeners learn more about Essence VC online? Yeah, so I have a website, essencevc.fund, you know, have a little bit of
1: information. You know, we're going to, I'm going to release more information about the fund over time. I do have a podcast as well, and people will listen to uh, me and Robbie from Cowboy. We're talking to a bunch of open source founders about their early learnings and challenges. So, yeah, you know, follow my Twitter, follow the podcast, and definitely have more information out there. But, you know, as much as possible, I've I told everybody that is interested in for my fund or even people that you know are considering taking our investments. I always talk to tell them to go talk to the founders. We back. You know, we have a, the, the company logos on our website. Talk to them. You know, they are the source of truth. Right, <laughs> they are the people that actually work with me, and they have the best like knowledge of how what does it look like to work with me in general. But um, yeah, that's, those are places that I, I have information on.
0: And remind listeners the name of the podcast. Yeah, it's called Open Source Startup Podcast. Sounds good. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's great to be here.